Um, I have uh, the privilege today of opening up the scriptures to the first part in a new summer series uh, called the Psalms. I love the Psalms because in the Psalms I always find myself. I always find whatever situation I'm in. Uh, whatever uh, concern I might have, no matter where my heart is in any particular day, I can find the psalm so beautifully honest, the high points, the low points, the failure, the victory, the uh, questions, the doubts. It's a great place to go to regardless of where you are at in your faith. This morning, though, I want to focus in on one particular psalm that I'm going to say right from the start, I know that I cannot give justice to. My words, my enthusiasm, of which there is much, do not give justice to this psalm. Uh, This psalm encapsulates who God is, uh, encapsulates who man is, who mankind is, and how we should respond to God. But So I want to jump straight in. We're going to read all this psalm, which uh, is Psalm 8, a very well-known psalm, Psalm 8. So if you have your Bibles, then please head there now. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. I want you to notice some words here, majestic, glory. Let's move on. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a beautiful psalm. What a beautiful day to preach. What a wonderful psalm. And we're going to move through this psalm. And I've got three points. And my first point for you this morning is the look. The look of David. I'm sure many of you, even at this time of year, and it's so crystal clear and beautiful, you can go out into your backyards or into the countryside and get away from the lights. And you can look up to the heavens And you can just take in the glory of the heavens. And I'm sure many of you, when you stand and you look up and you can see the wispiness of the Milky Way and you can maybe see a shooting star and Mars and some of the larger planets are shining and the the beautiful heavens, I'm sure that you stand there and you open up your arms and you look up and you go, I am amazing. I am an incredible thing. I'm so big, I'm so significant, I'm so magnificent. Look at me. Does that what the universe does to us? Does it not do the opposite? Does it not that as you look at the stars, and these are actual pictures, and I don't know, you must have really good eyesight if you can see the universe like this. But as you look, does it not make you feel small? Does it not make you feel like David Oh, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You may not have words to put to it. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just exploring Christianity and faith. Still, you, I'm sure, would look at the heavens and have your breath taken away at the magnificence and the beauty that we can so fortunately look at. David's response 
O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You'll notice that the first verse and the final verse of this psalm are exactly the same. It's almost like David cannot put into words what it is that he is looking at. And as he moves through, it says, you have established strength. And then he carries on. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, which you have set in place. Let's just pause there just for a second. As we look at the beauty of the universe, David sees so much more than just stars. What he actually sees is the majesty, the glory, the power, the finger work of God. That's what he sees. He sees clues, if you like, to the existence of God, and it takes his breath away, which is why he says, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. He, he can't put into words because he immediately looks at the universe and he thinks of God. And many would agree there must be a God. Many would disagree. Perhaps some of you this morning look at the universe and all you see is a mass of, of, of uh, planets and stars made up of different gases and you are quite comfortable in attributing that not to the work of a God but to just the work of the stars themselves, to science if you like. In fact, Stephen Hawkins in one of his most recent books, he said this, the universe created itself, you do not have to believe in God. So why does he feel that he needs to write such a book? It's because there are many people who look at the universe and say there must be a God. He's trying to negate that thought. There are so many scientific arguments that I could present to you this morning, presented by people, written by people far more uh, intelligent and well-educated than I am, that actually give arguments for and against the existence of God when it comes to the universe One of my favorite arguments is the fine-tuning argument. That the fact that the universe is so perfect, for that to have come into existence by itself is impossible. Now you go, oh, hang on a minute, Glenn. I watched a three-minute YouTube yesterday, and it was talking about just this thing. You can't say that it was impossible. You can't say it's impossible. So, so let me just read you a quote from somebody who is actually a scientist, a, a, a man called Francis Collins. He's an American physician and geneticist noted for his leadership of the Human Genome Project. All that is, well, this guy is really smart. He is a physicist. I want you to Read what he says with me. You don't have to do it out loud. Just watch what he says. This is not a pastor because you might go, yeah, Glenn, but you're a pastor. What do you know? And you know what? My wife would agree. (laughs) So let me turn to some experts. This is Francis Collins. When you look from the perspective of a scientist, not pastor, scientist, at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and the weak, nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If one, any one of those, not all of them, just one of them, of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, that's a big number. 
The universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. That's a phenomenally surprising observation. It seems almost impossible that we are here. And that does make you wonder, gosh, who was setting those constants anyway? Scientists have not been able to figure that out. Amen. I hope you have a great Sunday and the rest of your week. My case is closed. Here is a scientist who's saying the universe is inexplicable unless you bring in God. It's almost like it knew we were coming. It's like the most minute uh, change in just one of the constants. If it was just slightly from a million to a millionth off, all life would cease to exist. By accident. Let's read again. Actually, you know what? No, I'm going to come to that in a second. Let's talk about the Big Bang very briefly. I have no problem believing in the Big Bang. I just believe that God started it. I think he likes really big fireworks. I have no problem believing that. I can see that science actually points to that. So let's look at another argument when it comes to the origin of life. I love this one. This gets me really riled up. Okay? Here he goes. When it comes to the origin of life, before we move on, I need to tell you who this is. This is George Wald. He is a Nobel Peace Prize winning scientist. Okay? When it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. No God. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago. Just soak that in. That leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. Let me read it again. That leads us scientifically, not pastorally, to only one possible conclusion, that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that Philosophically, not scientifically, philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. That's the equivalent of going, I'm going to close my eyes, therefore I'm invisible because I can't see you, therefore you can't see me. And if I hold my breath, I go even more invisible. I refuse to believe philosophically there is a God, therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation arising to evolution. Isn't that amazing? Oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name who created this universe in such a way that the universe shouts out to the very work of God's fingers. That science itself, those who refuse to believe in God, have no conclusion. They have nothing. They choose to believe in the impossible. The impossible, not the probable, not the maybe, the impossible. See, for somebody like me, these kind of arguments are really important when it comes to a clue of God. For you, you might go, that doesn't bother me. But for some of you who are wrestling with science, science and, and Christianity are not at odds. They're actually beautifully molded together. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place, the work of your fingers. If our sun was the size of a penny, which we don't have anymore, but 
I'm sure you all remember them. If our sun is that size, the nearest star to our sun, which is called Alpha Centauri, would be 560 kilometers away. That's the same as from here to Canmore, roughly. That's our closest star. That makes the Milky Way 7.5 million miles across. And yet the Milky Way is minuscule in comparison to the universe. Here's Earth. I'm going to do this quickly. There's our solar system. Our solar system is in there. Then our interstellar neighborhood. And our interstellar neighborhood is in the Milky Way, 37 million miles across. And then you have the Milky Way, which is just there. And this local galactic group is in the Virgo supercluster, which is just there. And that supercluster is in, in, the, in, in this, even larger, I have no word because I'm a pastor there. And then this is the observable universe. At the work of your fingers. Isn't that amazing? That David doesn't actually say your arm, your hand. He says your fingers. Surely this causes us to proclaim like David, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So Christian friends... How does this cause us to respond to God? How do we view God? How do we regard God when we look at scriptures like this and we look at the magnitude and the perfection and the fingerprint of God in our universe? How do we actually view God as we look at these actual nebulas that, isn't that beautiful, in the shape of an eye? How do you view God? Do you see God as an assistant that is willing to come alongside whenever you want to give him permission? That if there's something difficult going on in your life, it's then that you hit your knees or you come to church or you go to care group and you reach out for him, that he's somehow a consultant, even though it says in Hebrews 1 that he upholds the whole universe and your life by the power of his word. That when he said, let there be light, and I believe the big bang created, it actually says, scientists say that the universe is still expanding because I believe this is just theory of Glenn. Okay, you can write it on a quote one day. I don't think God ever said, okay, light stop. Isn't it possible that the command of God in Genesis is still creating, expanding from his mouth? How do we regard God? Is he just somebody that we add to life when all the other activity quietens down? That we, you know, when the volleyball game is finished or the basketball game is finished or our business is closed or, you know, we're on holiday, then we pull for our Bible. Is that how we treat the God who placed nebulas like this into place with his fingers? Is it, don't call me, I'll call you. Actually, no, that's too, that's too much for our culture. Don't text me, God. I'll text you. If God is this God, then surely he is king. Center of life, majesty. But you know, not only does this universe show his power and his royalty, this creation shows his artistry. Look at Norway. You know, I looked at this and I'm like, wow, that's beautiful. And I remember somebody telling me just before I moved to British Columbia that British Columbia was like God's back garden. And I looked at this and went, yeah, we could take Norway. I think there are some scenes like that in British Columbia. Amen? Alberta? <laughs> See, I'm not forgetting, thank you, sir. I'm not forgetting Alberta. 
You see, Jonathan Edwards does some beautiful writing about the artistry of God as shown in creation. What he says is this. In Romans, it talks about how creation shows the glory of God. And Jonathan Edwards expanded this. And he said, not only is it that, but you can actually see God's character and heart in creation. The wisdom of God. The joy of God. God's power, his attention to detail, that he can, he can put stars and galaxies and nebulas and universes in place with his fingers, and yet he can also be intricately involved in the most minuscule part of nature. He has a sense of humor. My wife would say amen whenever she considers me. And I would say, let's just look around if you want to see that God has a sense of humor. He is creative. What would life look like, friends? If we actually lived believing that the very God who put stars into space is intricately involved in your life, that perhaps, maybe, just perhaps, he is able to come alongside and not only just help and assist and give you a kind of a, uh, the equivalent of a, a, a thump in the arm with a bit of a scripture every now and again, you can do it. Go. You know, we stick something on our fridge and we have a nice poster and we go, hey, God, oh, it's so bad. Maybe God can be so part of your life that it can radically transform and change and create a Genesis beginning in you. That God is so majestic that he's able to handle our life difficulty. And, and I want to be careful because I know there are many in the room who are struggling right now. But let me encourage you. The God who created that says, come, cast your cares upon me. It doesn't say in parenthesis, cast your cares upon me. But if you think I can't handle it, come and get them again. So we throw them and then we run after them and pick it up. Say, actually, God, maybe you can't handle this. I'll do it myself. What a way to live, to have an attitude of being grateful and overwhelmed by the power and beauty of God. Oh, how majestic is your name. It causes David to ask a question. So we have the look, and now we have the question. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, that you would do all this, and you're mindful of me? You're so powerful. You are so majestic. You are so incredible. I can't even put words to who you are, and yet you are mindful of me? So please listen very carefully to this. We live in a culture and a society that is not mindful of humanity at all. We actually live in a culture that communicates and educates that you are here by accident. That you have no purpose. You are just literally... Chemicals thrown together randomly that just happen to produce biology. That there is no purpose. If that is true, that there is no creator God, how does that make you feel significant? How is it that a thoughtless scientific experiment that produced the universe and therefore produced you, how does that make you significant? It makes you accidental. Does it make you feel wanted? Does it make you feel loved? And yet, it says in Ecclesiastes that eternity has been placed into the heart of every human being. So let's just add the logic together on this. There is a longing in every human being to be wanted, to be loved, to be accepted, and to be needed. Experiments have shown that if a baby does not have those things, it can die. 
I would argue that it doesn't matter your age. So we need want, we need love, we need acceptance, we need to be noticed, we need to be cared for, we need to be significant to somebody. We are hardwired as human beings to need those things, and yet science would say, you're an accident. So therefore, how can we be significant? So let's turn to a well-known philosopher, Bertrand Russell who actually addressed this very issue that there's an accident and an insignificance because of this accident. Bertrand Russell, that man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end that they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. He's talking about art and science and philosophy and, and creation from humans are all destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of an unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Have a nice day. What he's communicating here is that it doesn't matter what you do, good or evil, it makes no difference at all because you're an accident. But David says, you are mindful of me because you created me. That like David, we can believe in a God who does care because he created a universe that cares. How do we know that he cares? How do we know that we're significant? How do we know we have purpose? Well, he points to the visit. So we have the look, we have the question, and now we have the visit. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And then he answers the question, yet you have made him. Notice these words, a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. Crowned, glory, honor, made him. These are words that are attributed to God himself in the Bible. That we are actually a reflection of God's glory. We are the Imago Dei, God's image. So I want you to listen to this because this is really important if you are ever in any doubt as to what a Christian's response should be to those people in society that we see as different from us. As we look at people who are in relationships that we would contend with or habits that we would argue with or viewpoints and worldviews that we would be challenged with, I want you to consider Imago Dei, the image of God that we have been crowned and we have glory and honor because if we truly believe in Genesis and we believe that God created man in his image, then we all have dignity because of that. Every human being. Christian or not, every human being, regardless of their sexual orientation or their sexual practice or their habits in life, every human being is dignified because they've been created in the image of God. Now, before you check out, I want you to hear very carefully what I'm about to say. This perfection that God created, this Imago Dei in Adam and Eve before the fall, is now clearly broken. Sin, you can see everywhere in our world, in our, in our universe, the 
the Bible would argue, that is groaning under the weight of sin. And our lives are groaning under the weight of sin. Our culture is groaning under the weight of sin. Sin has broken the perfection that God created in Imago Dei. However, we can still see echoes of the Imago Dei in every human being. So Christian, please listen carefully to me. That's how we respond to people with love and respect and care and beauty and a listening ear. Not a 12-pound Bible the size of a small buffalo to bash them over the head with, thinking somehow we're going to nudge them into heaven. We love people towards Jesus. Imago Dei. Crowned with glory and honor. Every person who comes into contact with you, regardless of your situation or workplace or age, should leave your presence having felt the presence of God. Grateful that they met you today. Not disappointed and hopeful that they will never meet you again because you are so critical. I'm a Christian. You want to be just like me? No. But if we live through the lens of the beautiful God that not only created the universe but created mankind with dignity, because listen, we live in a culture that is broken, that people see themselves as worthless, with no value. The suicide rate and self-harming rate is increasing at such a rapid rate rate in our culture in young people and young adults. Why is that? No worth, no intrinsic value. They see themselves as an accident with no purpose. And yet God says, you have worth. It's broken. But through Jesus Christ, let's reconcile you back to the way that you were created to be. And worth and intrinsic value and joy and health and healing floods in, transforms. We believe we should all be treated with dignity because we were created with dignity. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care. This word care literally means visited or moved. It's caring enough that you would take a step towards somebody. So how did God prove our intrinsic worth? How did he prove his majesty? Not just with the universe, not just with the Norway, not just with fingerprints in nebulas. That is one way, David says. But what he actually says is that you visited us. He was prophetically pointing towards hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ himself visiting the Son of God. Because look what Zechariah said, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. The ultimate expression of the majesty of God is God humbling himself and coming to earth to show us how much you are loved, how much you are cared for, that he would give his life and die the death of the sin that you and I truly deserve death for. He says, I will take that sin and I will die, it will die with me. And then my life, My righteousness will be imputed, placed upon you, and you will be reconciled back to the perfection, the underlying perfection. Now, does that mean we all walk around thinking we're perfect? No, because we still struggle with sin, but our nature has changed. And look what Jesus does. He quotes Psalm 8. 
in Matthew. He quotes Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants. One of my favorite things about Jesus is that you can show, you can see a lot of evidence that Jesus was, had a great sense of humor, and he was somewhat sarcastic. So therefore, uh, ergo, he must have some Scottish in him. <laughs> that, I, that, that's, I, I can't find scripture for that, but... We'll find out one day. But let me give you an example. In Matthew, just as he comes into Jerusalem, after all the people are celebrating, Hosanna, Hosanna, crown him, beautiful God, majesty. And then all the scribes and the Sadducees and the scholars of the word all rise up and they say, this is wrong. What does Jesus say? He says this. This is the sarcasm. He says, have you not read? Now he knows, not only have they read, but they've learned It's like, have you not read that out of the mouths of babies and infants you have ordained praise? That God enjoys using the smallest and most insignificant people in order to establish strength and victory. That God himself humbled himself in the form of Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, came and humbled himself even to death on the cross and gained victory over the enemy and the avenger. All through the Old Testament, you can see example time and time again of God using the insignificant to do the significant, the weak to beat the strong, the powerless to be empowered, the meek to inherit the earth, the the humble will be first. He chooses the smallest, the weakest, the most insignificant. Why does he do that? Because he is pointing towards the humility of Jesus, who is going to find the greatest uh, established strength by overcoming the enemy and the avenger. Jesus came as a humble king. So we can see God's majesty and power and glory and love through the fingerprint of his universe. And we can also see God's love and majesty and power and glory through the fingerprint of his savior, Jesus Christ, as his hands with fingers outstretched on the cross and died a despicable and shameful death. Why? Because he wanted to communicate as loudly as the universe itself that you are loved, that you are significant, that he would give his life for you so that we, as I finish, as it finishes in Psalm 8, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Friends, we don't use this word a lot, but the scripture says that as we come to Christ and we by faith submit ourselves to him and he and and we ask for forgiveness and we confess that his life is imputed and placed upon us that we then can go and dominate life john 10 10 that we can live life abundantly that we can feel worthy rather than despairing that we can look at the universe and be reminded by his joy and, you, and his creation and his artistry that you, Glenn, if, if that is just, as, if the universe is a speck to God, how does he think about me? It's amazing. Every one of us should leave this place this morning encouraged by the power and glory of God as shown in Jesus Christ and we should go and we should dominate in the most positive way 
that life does not overcome us, we can overcome life. This is our destiny. And so we have a response, we have a choice, and we've, we're going to be singing a song in just a second, and it's an oldie but a goodie. Not old, old. It always makes me laugh when we say oldie because it was like 10 years. It's a good Chris Tomlin song that we haven't sung in a while. And I mentioned it to Curtis, and Curtis almost tripped over himself to try and get it included, which is indescribable. Remember that song? Some of the young ones are going, As we sing this song, Chris is clearly, Chris, like I know him, Chris is clearly thinking of Psalm 8 as he writes this song. And I want us to actually express our thanks and our gratefulness as we sing this song. But it also may cause you, before the Lord, to feel convicted because you have treated God like a consultant or an assistant, or you have doubted his ability and strength to actually transform your life. That we can go into the most challenging circumstances, whether it be health or family or finance or the myriad of other ways that life slams into us, we can approach it knowing that we do not go alone because the God of the universe comes not only alongside us but in us and through us, over and above us. You can't measure, the scripture says, the depth of his love for you. And you know what? Maybe it's expanding, just like the universe. Let's pray.